Do any of you walk? Yeah, this is this is a question that's on my mind. I, there are people who just hang around in the house and then they get into a car and they drive to places and they get out of the car and they do things and then they get back in the car and they drive home again. There are people who live like that. They don't do very much walking, those people. And then there are other people who walk 10,000 steps in in the first, you know, four hours of the day. So when I came across a book in a cafe that called itself A History of Walking, and it said on the blurb of the book that this book was going to be about why people walk. I thought, you know, I've just taken walking for granted. And maybe, maybe, this woman has got some interesting things to say about walking. And partly, I suppose, I was influenced by the fact that I wouldn't, uh, that I have read a few books about running, but I gave up running a while ago. So, <laughs> There's no so a note to follow, though. What to do? I'm I'm. This is a clumsy introduction to a book which I hope some of you will find interesting enough to listen to some of it. I'm decided I'm reading this book called called Wanderlust, and I'm starting reading it. I'm starting sharing it this evening, and I'm not promising to read all of the book. I'm not promising anything, but I've got here some audio, which is the introduction to the book. See what you think. Yeah, see what you think, or hear what you think and um, if you feel like it let me know what you think of the content so what's coming next is me reading the book a book at bedtime wanderlust a history of walking by rebecca Sinet. still walking on January the 1st, 1999, at the age of 89, Doris Haddock, better known as Granny D, set out to walk across the United States to demand campaign finance reform. She arrived in the nation's capital 14 months and 3,200 miles later. It was no coincidence that she chose an activity that required openness, engagement and few expenses to make her protest against the hidden corrosion of big money. Britons won a different battle with the right to Rome legislation passed in 2000 but only now realised as the new ordnance survey maps and other guides to the newly accessible rural areas appear.
Battles against private property owners continue, but much of the island is more accessible than before. Other victories in pedestrian in pedestrianized cities and rethink urban design to let children walk to school again even to ban automobiles from city centres on Sundays or once a year or all the time have been won. The new millennium arrived as a dialectic between secrecy and openness, between consolidation and dispersal of power, between privatisation and public ownership, power and life. Walking has, as ever, been on the side of the latter. On February the 15th, 2003, police estimated three quarters of a million took to the streets of London, though organisers thought two million a more accurate figure. 50,000 or so marched in Glasgow, about 100,000 in Dublin, Three times that many in Berlin, three million people in Rome, a hundred thousand in Paris, a million and a half in Barcelona, and two million in Madrid. South American demonstrations in Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Santiago, and other cities took place that day. Walkers gathered in Seoul, Tokyo, Tel Aviv, Baghdad, Karachi, Detroit, Cape Town, Calcutta, Istanbul, Montreal, Mexico City, New York, San Francisco, Sydney, Vancouver, Moscow, Tehran, Copenhagen. But to name only the large cities is to overlook the passion in Toulouse, in Malta, in small town New Mexico and Bolivia in the Inuit homeland of northern Canada, in Montevideo, Mostar, in Sfax, Tunisia, where the marchers were beaten by police, in Chicoutimi, Quebec, where the wind chill brought the temperature down to minus 40 degrees centigrade, in Juneau, Alaska, and on Ross island in Antarctica where the scientists don't walk far but posed for anti-war photographs to testify that even the seventh continent was on board. The global walk of more than 30,000 people prompted the New York Times to call civil society the world's other super. That day, February the 15th, 2003, didn't stop the war against Iraq, though it might have changed the war's parameters. Turkey, for example, under heavy citizen pressure, declined to let its air bases be used for the assault. The 21st century has dawned as an era of people, power, and public protest. In Latin America, in particular, that power has been very tangible. 
toppling regimes, undoing coups, protecting resources from foreign profiteers, undermining the neoliberal agenda of the free trade area of the Americas. But from students in Belgrade to farmers in in Korea, collective public acts have mattered. Walking itself has not changed the world, but walking together has been a right tool and reinforcement of the civil society that can stand up to violence, to fear and to repression. Indeed, it is hard to imagine a viable civil society without the free association and the knowledge of the terrain that comes with walking. A sequestered or passive population is not quite a citizenry. So this is the three-quarter ways down the second page of the forward to the book. I'll read more on another night. Welcome back to more of the introduction to Wanderlust, A History of Walking. When I was reading this to you last, I got as far as a couple of sentences as follows. Walking itself has not changed the world, but walking together has been a right tool and reinforcement of the civil society that can stand up to violence, to fear and to repression. Indeed, it is hard to imagine a viable civil society without the free association and the knowledge of the terrain that comes with walking. A sequestered or passive population is not quite a citizenry. So let's read on. The 50,000-person march in Seattle that culminated in a shutdown of the 1999 World Trade Organization meeting on November 30, 1999, was one start of a new era in which a global movement stood up against the corporate version of globalization with its threats to the local, the democratic, the unhomogenized and independent. September the 11th, 2001, and the collapse of the World Trade Towers is the other date usually selected as the stormy dawn of the new millennium. And perhaps the most profound response to that terrorism was the first. The tens of thousands of New Yorkers who walked away from the danger together on foot, as citizens familiar with their streets, and as human beings willing to offer aid to strangers, filling avenues like a grim parade, turning the Brooklyn Bridge into a pedestrian route, eventually turning Union Square into an agora for public mourning and public debate. 
was an absolutely terrible, terrible experience for those people. I was in Turkey at the time. Right, end of parenthesis. Those tens or hundreds of thousands living in public, unarmed, engaged and equal were the opposite of the secrecy and violence that characterised both the attacks and Bush's revenge and unrelated war in Iraq. That much of the anti-war movement has also consisted of massive groups of walkers. Is perhaps not coincidental. I'm going to read that again. That much of the interwar movement has also consisted of massive groups of walkers is perhaps not coincidental. The best evidence of the potency of unarmed people walking together in the streets is the aggressive measures taken in the US and the UK to control or altogether stop these crowds. At the Republican National Convention in New York in August 2004, in Glen Eagles, Scotland, during the G8 summit a year later, as well as at any corporate globalisation conference since 1999, be it the WTO, that's the World Trade Organisation, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, World Economic Forum, or G8. These summits, at which the power of the few is openly pitted against that of the many, have routinely required that temporary police states be built around them with millions of pounds, dollars, euros or yuan spent on security forces, armaments, surveillance, fences and barriers. A world brutalised in defence of brutal policy. Wow, this is strong stuff. This is strong. A world brutalised in defence of brutal policy. Let's go on. But more insidious forces are marshalled against the time, space and will to walk and against the version of humanity that act embodies. One force is the filling up of what I think of as the time in between. The time of walking to or from a place of meandering, of running errands. That time has been deplored as a waste, reduced and its remainder filled with earphones playing music and mobile phones relaying conversations. The very ability to appreciate this uncluttered time, the use of the useless, often seems to be evaporating, as does the appreciation of being outside, including outside the familiar mobile phone conversations seem to serve as a buffer against solitude, Silence and encounters with the unknown. Oh, I feel like reading that again. The very ability to appreciate this uncluttered time, the uses of the useless, often seem to be evaporating, as does appreciation of being outside, including outside the familiar mobile phone conversations seem to serve as a buffer against solitude, silence and encounters with the unknown. A buffer against solitude, silence and encounters with the unknown. Technology as such is hard to finger as a culprit, 
since the global march of February the 15th, 2003 was coordinated on the internet, but technology's commercial deployment is often against those things that are free in both senses, monetary and political. Other changes are easy to point to, factors that have mostly intensified in the years since I wrote Wanderlust. So when was Wanderlust first written? Uh, let's see, I'm turning to the introduction, or to the, um, the credits. It, this book was first published in the UK in 2001. It was a paperback edition in 2002. And this edition... Mm, good question. Very good question. Well, I guess 2001 is the likely year. Now, where was I? I think we'll stop there for a short break. Welcome back to the last part of the introduction to Wonderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. Where did we let, leave off? We left off with the sentence, other changes are easy to point to, factors that have mostly intensified in the years since I wrote Wanderlust. Obesity and its related health crisis seems to be becoming more and more of a transnational pandemic as people in more parts of the world become immobilized and overfed from childhood on, a downward spiral where the inactive body becomes less and less capable of action. That obesity is not just circumstantial due to a world of digital amusements and parking lots of sprawls and of sprawl and suburbs but conceptual in origin as people forget that their bodies could be adequate to the challenges that face them and a pleasure to use they perceive and imagine their bodies as essentially passive a treasure or a burden but not a tool for work and travel. Promotional material for motorized Segway scooters, for example, asserts that traveling short distances in cities and even warehouses is a challenge that only machines can solve. The adequacy of feet alone to go the distance has been erased, along with the millennia we got around before machines. The fight against this collapse of imagination and engagement may be as important as the battles for political freedom, because only by recuperating a sense of inherent power, because only by recuperating a sense of inherent power can we begin to resist both oppressions and the erosion of the vital body in action. And as the climate heats up and oil runs out, this recovery is going to be very important. More important perhaps than alternative fuels and the other modes of continuing down the motorised route 
rather than reclaiming the alternatives. I often find myself at odds with pedestrian and bicycle advocates who believe that infrastructure is everything, that if you build it, they will come. I believe that most industrial zone human beings need to rethink time, space and their own bodies before they will be equipped to be as urbane and as pedestrian or at least non-motorized as their predecessors. It's a long sentence. Let me read that again. I often find myself at odds with pedestrian and bicycle advocates who believe that infrastructure is everything, that if you build it, they will come. I believe that most industrial zone human beings need to rethink time, space, and their own bodies before they will be equipped to be as urbane and as pedestrian, or at least non-motorized, as their predecessors. Only in places like Manhattan and London do people, some people, seem to remember how to integrate public transit and their own legs in an effective, ethical and sometimes deeply pleasurable way of navigating the terrain of their daily lives. Wow, so Manhattan and London are the only two places he can, he can think of in which people remember how to integrate public transport and walking. Wow. I wrote Wanderlust at the end of the 1990s in a world that was already polarized and readers and reviewers bemused me by taking so affectionately to it. Perhaps it was the pleasure of reading of pilgrimages and prostitute strolls that kept them from bristling at the ways this book was also a polemic against industrialization, privatization of open lands, the oppression and confinement of women, suburbia, and the disembodiment of everyday life, and a few other such things. Wow! Perhaps it was the pleasure of reading of pilgrimages. Yeah, I like to read about pilgrimages. And prostitute strolls. I'm not used to that. That kept them from bristling at the ways this book was also a polemic against industrialization. I have been well prepared by now for this book to be polemical. Also a polemic against industrialization, privatization of open lands. Oh, that's so important to prevent. The oppression and confinement of women, suburbia. disembodiment of everyday life and a few other such things. The book opened up a huge territory for me that I continue to explore in some ways. My 2003 book about Edward Moybridge continued my investigation of the industrialization of time and space and the acceleration of everyday life that began with wanderlust. Hold on a second, I never heard of this uh, character, Ed, Ed Weird, E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D, 
Mybridge, M-U-Y-B-R-I-D-G-E. The book opened up a huge territory for me that I continue to explore. In some ways, my 2003 book about Edward Muybridge continued my investigation of the industrialization of time and space and the acceleration of daily life that began with Wanderlust. Hope in the Dark looked further, that must be another one of his books, Hope in the Dark looked further at the power of citizens in the streets to change the world. And A Field Guide to Getting Lost, that must be another of his books, or, or her, what am I talking about, his, her books. A Field Guide to Getting Lost expanded on the uses of wandering and uncertainty. Oh, that's pushing. I love the title, A Field Guide to Getting Lost. I am still walking the terrain of Wanderlust, which was for me a map of the world, selective as all maps are, but extensive too. And now we come to the last paragraph in this introduction. One of the greatest pleasures of researching and writing this book was arriving at a set of conclusions and descriptions in which many familiar divisions were reunited. While walking, the body and the mind can work together, so that thinking becomes almost a physical, rhythmic act. So much for the Cartesian mind-body divide. <laughs> a bit of a kick in the pants to... Cartesianism. Descartes. Spirituality and, sexu spirituality and sexuality both enter in. The great walkers often move through both urban and rural places in the same way. And even past and present are brought together, are brought together when you walk as the ancients did or relive some events in history or your own life by retracing its route. And each walk moves through space like a thread through fabric, sewing it together in a continuous experience. Oh my goodness, I like that sentence so much. I'm going to mark it in the book. Where was I here? And, and each walk moves through space like a thread through fabric, a thread through fabric, sewing it together into a continuous experience. So unlike the way air, travel, chops up time and space, and even cars and trains do, I wonder what he thinks of boats, this continuity is one of the things I think we lost in the industrial age. And here comes the punchline, but we can choose to reclaim it again and again, and some do. The fields and streets are waiting. Thus ends the introduction to a book called Wanderlust. W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit Right, I wonder, is it worthwhile continuing to read this book? If it has many more paragraphs which include 
and each walk moves through space like a thread through fabric, sewing it together into a continuous experience. If this book contains more of that, I'll definitely read another chapter. We'll see what's coming next, I wonder.